My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. This morning, I'll be focusing primarily from the scripture lesson we heard from the gospel according to St. Matthew. What we see here is an interesting pattern of attack that the Pharisees use against Jesus, and it is a pattern of attack that continues to be waged, used against Jesus and his people to this very day, so it helps to be aware of it. But there's a lot of interesting things that we can learn from this story here. And in verse 15, it starts with, The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So Jesus, obviously, in this story, has enemies. And we know that the enemies of Christ in this story are the entrenched religious leaders of his day. The Pharisees are not the only religious leaders of his day. They, uh, there are actually another group called the Sadducees as well. And the Sadducees were the wealthy party. And at this point in time, the Sadducees had control of the temple and of the worship that went on in the temple. But the Pharisees were a key part of life in the synagogue, though. And so as his enemies, what do they do? They don't want to try to attack him with violence yet, though they will ultimately use violence to try to silence Jesus. They try to do something else here. They try to entangle him in his words. It says they plotted how to entangle him in his words, how to trap him. And so we ask ourselves, why? Well, if they can catch him saying something they would see as problematic or against the Torah, they could use it against him, which they aren't ever able to do. So what they have to do is when they finally do try to use his words against him, they lie. They lie. And the people that the Pharisees are here with, the Herodians, they are kind of in an alliance right now. But the thing is, the Pharisees and the Herodians did not get along at all but they have allied themselves to get, together to try to get rid of Jesus. And they come to him with honeyed words, right? They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Wow, that's kind of sneaky, right? We know you always tell the truth, Jesus. We know you've never told a lie. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully. We know that you don't care about what other people say about you. You're not swayed. <laughs> usually when people say, you don't care about what anybody says, that usually means there's a jerk. But Jesus actually does so in a way that's not jerkish. We all have that friend, right? I just like to tell her how it is. No, you're kind of, you're kind of mean. You're kind of mean. They try to flatter him because they actually don't believe that he's speaking the truth. They actually don't believe that he has come from God. They don't believe that he's the son of God. They don't believe that he's the son of man. 
They're the ones who actually care about appearances. They're the ones who care about other people's opinions. They are the one who is swayed by appearances. They are the one, the ones who are taken astray by wealth, by power and social status and standing. They don't believe he's from God. They're blinded by their own agendas. And they actively, throughout the Gospels, work against him. Actively work against him. And that continues even after the resurrection and the ascension, is that people go out claiming to be, oh yeah, Jesus, sure, yeah, yeah, we're part of his group. And then they try to bring in destructive teachings that are contrary to what Jesus has taught through his apostles. And they try to spring a trap, right? After they, they use the flattery, right, to try to disarm. It's a really good tactic. Yes, you speak the truth. You don't care what anybody says about you. Oh, by the way, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not? Should we, Jesus? We really want your opinion on this because we really think that it will be helpful. So here's the trap. If he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then they can say, oh, we've got him now because taxes went to support the Roman military machine that was there in Judea. The taxes would go to feed soldiers and house soldiers and pay for all that stuff. The Roman governor, Roman appear, like all of that stuff. The Romans kind of didn't care what you did. As long as you paid your taxes and you didn't try to revolt. They would kind of leave you alone. And so taxes would go to that. So if he says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, we totally should. They could then go back to the people and say, see, he loves Rome. He supports Rome. And at the time that Jesus is alive here on the earth, there's a group called the Zealots. And the Zealots are actually what lead to the ultimate destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70 when they revolt openly against Rome, and Rome's like, we're done. We're done with this. Because there's always problems in this area. And the Roman Empire is like, we're done. And they send in Titus, and they steamroll everybody, destroy Jerusalem and the temple because of the zealots. But if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, they can then turn around to the Herodians and to the other people and say, look, Jesus, he is, uh, he's, tre he's a treason guy, right? He's a traitor. He doesn't believe that Rome is our, our rightful like, ruler. We, he, he, he's actually a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary trying to foment dissent against the ruling class, which is something that often gets ascribed to Jesus. Quite the predicament. Yes, means you support Rome and you support everything that comes with that. He says no, then he's a traitor to Rome. He's, a, he's committed treason. But Jesus, it says, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? And it should maybe make us think about the temptation narrative earlier in the gospel when who comes to Jesus to tempt him? Satan! <laughs> right? And Jesus says to him in response, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians here are actively walking in the role as laid out by the father of lies, the devil himself. And Jesus responds to them in the same way. Why do you test me? 
You hypocrites. You hypocrites. He calls them out right to their faces. And the funny thing is in this story is that they've admitted that he's not swayed by appearances. They say, we know you teach the truth. We know what you have to say comes from God. We're with you. This question is showing their sneakiness. But the thing is, their description of him was correct. He does teach the truth. He doesn't care about other people's opinions. He is not swayed by appearances. He always can see to the heart. Because he's the son of God. And thus they are judged by their own words. And oftentimes in the Gospels, we see this at work. Someone will say something about Jesus that they say is kind of meant to make fun of him or something like that, but what actually showing the truth of the situation, right? Like, so when Jesus is wrapped in a cloak at, during the Passion and the soldiers beat him and they say, hail, hail, they worship, like they hail him as king, right? The irony in that story is he actually is the king. We see that pattern all throughout the Gospels. So Jesus says this, he gets the coin and he's like, whose image is on this? And they say, well, that's Caesar's image. And then using their own trap, he springs it on them. He acknowledges the image on the coin. He's like, okay, if this is Caesar's, if this belongs to Caesar, then who should you give it to? Caesar. Render unto Caesar, give to Caesar's that which belongs to him. And then he says, render unto God, give unto God the things that are God's, the things that belong to God. He bypasses their trap entirely. Entirely. Is there something due to a temporal ruler of this earth? If there's something due to him, then give it to him. Is there something due to God, the, the, the true king of the universe and of all creation? Then give what's due to him. And we see this tension, right, in the scriptures. St. Paul will say things like, as, as much as it depends on you, he says, I think in Romans, live peaceably with all, as much as it depends on you. He puts... He puts the responsibility on us as Christians to live as best we can in peace with those around us. But there are certain things that belong to this world and there's some things that belong to God. So then we ask ourselves, well, then what is due to God? What is due to God? St. John Chrysostom wrote, For it is possible both to fulfill to men their claims and to give unto God the things that are due to God from us. Wherefore, Paul also said, Render unto all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear. Right? So, if, who are, what are we to render then? What do we render to God? What is due to God? And the scripture, Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor or in the beauty of holiness. So what we give to God, what God expects from us, what we are to give to him, that is his due, is worship. His worship. We don't all just give to God worship. We give to God our obedience to his word. We give obedience to his commandments. We give to God our love. We do all of this not out of fear. We don't give to God our worship and our obedience out of fear. We do it out of a heart that's been transformed through the power of Christ. We give to him our love and then we show that love to our friends and neighbors around us. 
we are to give to God our obedience, our love, our worship. And ultimately, as we, the days we come before the Lord's table, one of the prayers that we pray, we say, you know, we offer to you, O Lord, ourselves to be a, a living sacrifice, which is right from St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, where he says, offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice so that you may uh, obtain the, the perfect and true uh, will of God. For this is, he says, he says, this is your reasonable act of worship. Offering ourselves, our lives to him for his service. And we do so out of love because ultimately he has saved us. He has saved us. And this pattern, pattern of attack against Christ and his church, we see this today. Right? We see this, we see this grain of truthfulness mixed with falsehoods. We see the twisting of God's word. But the trap so much today isn't so much did God say, as much as the trap is, did God mean? Right. Did God really mean this? I know the scriptures say this, the teaching of the church has said this throughout time, but did God really mean that? Maybe there's a different meaning that we can glean. Maybe we can acknowledge those old meanings, but then just cast them aside as something as part of a patriarchal, ignorant era as we move into a bold new future. The twisting of God's word, this pattern of attack. Jesus is great. He's a, he's a, he's a wonderful teacher. He said some really good things. But he didn't really like rise from the dead. You don't really believe that, right? You don't really believe in the resurrection. It's just a story. It's just a story about hope in the midst of bad situation can sort of just grow in our hearts and make us happy. Like Jesus wasn't really the son of God. He's not really light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father through whom all things were made. He was just like Buddha. Or insert your favorite religious leader, right? Jesus said some good things, but these things that he said about being God didn't really mean that, right? So a lot of that, shouldn't we live this way or worship this way or believe this way? Well, no. And these are false dilemmas. And it behooves us, brothers and sisters, as children of Christ, as the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ, St. Paul reminds us, to be aware of Satan and his devices, to be aware of Satan and the traps that he sets for us, to sidestep through all of that. Christ is still attacked. His word is still attacked. But we can recognize those attacks for what they are. And you know, we don't even, and, and we can sidestep those attacks entirely and point all of our gaze, our love, and our attention back to the God who saved us. And we can call others to enter into that relationship to him through us. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory, together with his Father who is from everlasting, and his all-holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast for Zion Stone Church. I'm Reverend Mike Lanthman, and I'd like to extend to you an invitation, if you're ever in our area, to please worship with us Sunday mornings at 1015. If you'd like to get a hold of me, or would like some information about the church, or just have some questions, feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page or via email. 
Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.